It's now time for the City Club of Idaho Falls. The following meeting took place January 23rd and features Corey Tolley and Marty Trillhouse of the Post Register. They speak and take questions about the topic Idaho politics, what lies ahead. That's in this hour of the City Club of Idaho Falls, airing the final Monday of each month right here on KISU. And now, City Club MC, Dr. David Adler. Greetings, everyone. Press has played a very important role in American history. The framers of the Constitution certainly regarded the press as playing a critical role in promoting self-governance and looked to the press, of course, as the fourth estate. Thomas Jefferson summed up the framers' thoughts on the importance of the press very nicely when he said that if he were asked whether he would prefer to live in a country in which there was a government with no newspapers or newspapers with no government, he would prefer the latter because he thought that the capacity of the press, an independent press, to inform the public so that we could play our roles as good participatory citizens was absolutely critical to the young republic. And over the course of American history, the press has taken its shots, but on the whole, the press has well served the United States, and in a democracy, how could we expect anything less than contention when it comes to the role of the press? Today, we're very fortunate, as Mark pointed out, to have two of Idaho's leading journalists with us. Corey Talley and Marty Trillhouse from the Post Register are well known for their accomplishments in the field of journalism. Uh, both, ironically, came to the Post Register about the same time. Corey, who was a Montanan, had graduated from the University of Montana in 95, and two days later was at work here at the Post Register. Marty who was a graduate of University of Idaho, that's that other school in Idaho, you might have heard of it, graduated as a journalism major and then conducted a tour of duty, duty among a number, a number of the state's newspapers, including Moscow and Lewiston and Twin Falls, and then arrived at the Post Register about the same time as Corey and immediately assumed his duties as editor of the opinion page. And Marty has won numerous awards and is clearly one of the leading editorial writers in the state. We're very fortunate to have him. He, of course, is filling in at the last minute uh, for Dan Popke of the Idaho Statesman, whom we had invited. Uh, but Dan phoned early this morning while I was out shoveling my driveway, the beginning of a two-hour stint, and indicated that the roads were terrible at Boise. He made a great effort, but there were slide-offs. He phoned me again at mountain home and he was given it the old college try but he's a friend and I warned him off and said it's it's not worth it we'll bring you back at another time plus I said I know then that I could I could twist Marty's arm to bring him on board he couldn't say no and in case you're wondering it was the fire marshal who told us that we had to limit the crowd here he was afraid if the if the public knew Marty was here that we would be swelling throughout this room. At any rate, it gives me a great deal of pleasure to invite Corey and Marty to the stage. Gentlemen. As is our practice here, we've asked our two guests to take a few minutes to provide some observations about Idaho politics 
some of the characters, some of the leading issues, and then we'll proceed to, to take questions from all of you. So we want to encourage you to write questions on those three by five cards which appear on your tables. And folks, this is your chance to grill those who comment on our issues and provide reporting. So this is equal time. Gentlemen, it's nice to have both of you with us today. We appreciate it. Uh, Corey, why don't I turn to you first and ask you to provide some general observations. First, thanks for inviting me. I appreciate it. And uh, I'm sorry I drove down attendance so much, but uh, you know, <laughs> lesson learned next time asking the reporters. Um, I, the, the topic was the future of Idaho politics. Um, and there's a couple ways to do this, I guess. Uh, the, the, the first and the, I guess the easiest way is kind of the old, the old horse race where, uh, you know, we talk about in 2010 we've got uh, federal races, we've got statewide races, legislative races, and what to expect. And so I'll just do that real quickly because uh, I think uh, if we look at the makeup of our legislature to start there maybe with the, a large Republican majority that we've had for some time, it's... It's kind of hard to fathom how that's going to change, really, and it's uh, it, I, it's hard to look five years down the road, ten years down the road, especially when we've got a redistricting coming up, which will change the boundaries. But uh, you know, the Democrats have maxed out in Boise, they've maxed out pretty closely in Pocatello, they've maxed out in Sun Valley, and they've got a chance to nibble, nibble at the edges, maybe here in the city district, maybe in Lewiston, Moscow. But I think pretty well what you see is what you're going to get. I mean, it's not it's not going to change discernibly. So. You know, you're going to have sizable Republican majorities over there for the for the for the near future, unless you know, unless some big event happens. Um, at the federal level, uh, Senator Crapo's up in 2010 again. It's uh, he ran unopposed uh, four years ago. He's got a lot of money in the bank. He'll have a lot more in two years. There's no real Democratic candidate that stands out when you think about this. It's really hard to believe that that's going to even be even a competitive race. Um, Simpson's up in two years. Um, I don't know if I don't know if any any member of Congress fits his district better than Mike Simpson does, um, and unless he gets a serious funded challenge from the right, it's hard to imagine there's going to be much at play there. Uh, Minnick up north, obviously the Republicans will take a run at him, but as uh, Richard Stallings showed here for a lot of years, it's tough to get those guys out once they're in. Um, the statewide is where it could get interesting. We've got a governor who's up in two years, who's got a lot of who's being asked to make a lot of tough choices right now, and. Uh, is making a lot of difficult decisions, the kind of things that usually get you in electoral trouble. Uh, again, the Democrats, when you start looking at candidates who might run against Butch in two years, there's not a lot that really jump out at you. Um, Clint Stennett would be the, the obvious favorite, I think. He's the uh, Senate Minority Leader. But Clint's got some health problems. Um, I haven't talked to him in about a year. I don't know how he's doing. Um, other than Clint, it's really hard to pinpoint anybody who would get in there and, and give Otter you know, a, a, a real good challenge. The race potentially, I think, to look at is the superintendent of public instruction. Um, you know, Tom Luna has taken a, a pretty radically different approach to his job than Marilyn Howard did. When Marilyn went in, she would go into the budget committee and she would she would basically lay out, okay, this is what I think the schools need. It was always way above what uh, what was probably realistic. What Luna's done, he's taken a lot more pragmatic approach, and uh, he's essentially gone in and said, okay. The governor wants to cut schools. We're not going to fight him on that. And that's, at least with the educators I've talked to, and it's you know it's a fairly small, um, fairly small uh, example right now. But they're they're not happy with him. And uh, in a couple of years, that would be the one race I would think that would get that would get pretty competitive. Um, 
But beyond the horse race stuff, what I, what I wanted to convey to you folks today is uh, hopefully what's the future of Idaho politics, I, I, what, it's, what I think is most important is that all of you get more and more involved and, uh, and hopefully all the people within the reach of my voice. The biggest change in, in Idaho politics, I think, in the last couple decades is the amount of scrutiny that it gets. Um, the newspaper industry has changed a lot. Uh, readership has changed a lot. When I went over and started covering legislative sessions in 2000, you had you had a full. I mean, you, the reporting staffs underneath that were that were over there covering that it was really the cream of the crop. I mean, every newspaper sent their best guy. You had uh, an Associated Press bureau chief who'd been there 20 years and had a huge amount of respect and who knew that place better than 99% of the politicians. He's gone. Almost all the veterans are gone except for one, Betsy Russell from the Spokesman Review. Some newspapers don't send people to, to cover the session anymore. Um, those that do, the coverage is, is really ratcheted down, and that's essentially because we've listened to our customers. Uh, people don't want this saturated like they used to. They, they, don't, they don't want the daily stories out of the Budget Committee. They don't, uh, you know, they don't want 20-inch 20, 20 stories on uh, what's happening in the Health and Welfare Committee. So. With, with less press coverage, it's, it's, it's much more important that people get involved on their own. It's the old, uh, the old Ben Franklin story, I think. And uh, they came out of the Constitutional Convention, and uh, some, uh, a lady asked him what, what kind of government he gave us. He said, a republic if you can keep it. We're to the point now where uh, if, I think if we want to keep it, it's going to take, take more than just, uh, just reading the newspaper, I'm sorry to say. I mean, for years you've paid folks like us to go over there and do this. And we're going to keep doing it, but you're not getting as much, and you're not getting the thoroughness of it. You're not getting the you're just you're just not going to get as much. You're not going to get uh, as much detail as my, as many layers. And uh, you know, if you're if you're really interested in this stuff, it's probably up to you to go do some on your own as well. And uh, the Idaho Legislative website's a great source. At the federal level, uh, there's a site called Thomas that gets you that can t take you into any bill you want, votes. Um, OpenSecrets.org for those who are interested in campaign finance. Um, and you know, and having said this, I suggest please please continue reading the papers. We uh, <laughs> we uh, I, and I think we're going to pat ourselves on the back here a little bit. We 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 continue to send people over there. And uh, you know, when I stopped doing this two years ago, we sent Phil Davidson over, who was a terrific reporter. He went back to Illinois, uh, followed his girlfriend home. And this year, we've got Nick Draper over there, who's he's young, but he's really good, and he's a smart kid, and he'll do a good job. But even so, they're not. Back in Marty's day, they used to write 10, 12 stories a week, and they just saturated that thing. When I was doing it, it was probably more like six, seven stories a week. You're probably down four or five stories a week. So, I guess the the message for me, the future of Idaho politics, is a lot of it depends on you folks, and I would encourage you to get involved. Thank you. Is this on? Uh, sorry about being late. I was on the phone getting last-minute instructions from Moscow. <laughs> uh, I'm just going to give you an overview. I threw some notes together this morning when I heard about this. Uh, I think in Boise it's all going to come down to the economy and budget. Uh, the governor's call for steep cuts in schools, higher ed and elsewhere opens a couple of questions. Uh, first, will the legislature truly leave $200 million in the bank account? Uh, including $50 million that was meant to prevent the schools from suffering budget cuts. Will the economy get worse? Bob Fick, that, uh, that Corey just mentioned, he now works for the Department of Employment. 
and he just issued a press release that said that Idaho has seen, no other state has seen a steep rise in unemployment in so short a time as this one. So that raises the question, where's the bottom? Um, are we still in free fall? And then there is this question of what happens in May and April when we get the income tax collections. Will the bottom fall out and will we see a special session that raises the question, do we have to cut further? There's also this possibility that the Obama stimulus package will bail everybody out. There's a rumor that it will cover the school cuts, possibly the transportation program, which raises, if that doesn't happen, then you have the question of how many school districts will resort to a supplemental property tax levy, precisely the reverse of the Jim Risch tax cut plan. Now, the way that will work is if you're in an urban district with a wealthy tax base, you've got a reasonable chance of passing a supplemental. But if you're in Fremont County or Sugar City or uh, Driggs, no, not Driggs, uh, Arco, uh, you're not going to have much of a chance of that. So you're talking about a growing gap between the rural, strapped, shrinking school and the urban schools. Uh, on transportation, that audit that just came out this week basically says the cost of maintaining our system is $150 million. We're going to be nowhere near that even if the governor gets what he wants. I don't think he's going to get it. Uh, at his program, according to the audit, he's asking for $174 million at the end of five years. The state's share of that would be 99.3. That assumes no inflation. Uh, then the angles on that, will a conservative legislature go along with a tax increase in a recession? Will the Democrats go along with a program that basically puts potholes ahead of pupils? <laughs> and then you have this perception, is this a statewide problem or is this a Boise problem? And, who per and then you have this political tug of war between the governor and the uh, legislature, which has been going on for Butch but where the legislature has prevailed more times than not, going all the way back to perhaps Phil Babb. And then you have the question, will the Obama stimulus package bail them out and buy them enough time so that they don't make the tough calls that they need to make today? On the congressional side, we just elected the second and third oldest member of the freshman class of 57. Walt Minnick is number two. He's beat by about six weeks by a congressman out of Alabama. And Rish is number three. It's unlikely either one will accumulate much seniority. Minnick would have to be in his late 70s to get as much time as Mike Simpson has today, and Rish would be in his early 80s to reach the point that Larry Craig was. On the committee assignments, Mike Simpson's moving up in seniority. He's uh, a ranking member of Appropriations on Interior and Environment, so he, that's a subcommittee with jurisdiction over BLM, Forest Service uh, Major Species, National Park Service. And he's moved up a couple of spots on the Subcommittee on Energy and Water, which handles the site. Minix on Financial Services and Agriculture, and he is the uh, Democrat holding the 14th most Republican district in the country. So the Democrats can't do enough to help him. Rish got on Foreign Relations, which sounds great, but that's the bottom rung of the Super A committees. He's certainly not replacing Craig on Appropriations. He's holding Craig's seat on natural resources. And the fact that he's on ethics indicates they think he's squeaky clean. Uh, Crapo's on finance and banking. He dropped agriculture and, and moved over to environment and public works in time to authorize 
highway funding. I think the big change is cohesion on that on that delegation. Uh, Randy Staples made the point that they've they've uh, gotten together on uh, three issues: uh, uh, Minick, the Democrat, and, and Simpson, the Republican, together on CEDRA. They got together on SHIP, uh, and they all got together on defending um, Rich's roadless plan. So the question is uh, where that movement goes. I think you're going to find a delegation that, uh, with Craig and Bill Sally out, is moving more to the center, a little more cohesive, a little more pragmatic. We'll return to the City Club of Idaho Falls in just one moment on KISU-FM. to the City Club of Idaho Falls, recorded January 23rd at the Benyon Student Union Building in Idaho Falls. Thank you, gentlemen. Thanks very much. We have a, a number of wonderful questions. Let's begin with some budgetary issues, because the budget is, of course, center stage these days. A, a number of, of members of our audience are interested in knowing about the reluctance of the governor and apparently members of the legislature to tap the rainy day fund so as to soften the blow on education. Would you take a stab at that? Well, um, I can only speculate. I, I, part of me wonders if there is a fear that they, they're talking about a 5.3% cut and what is it, 10 across the board? Eight. I, part of me wonders if they truly wonder if it's going to get worse. And so they're keeping their options open, that they want to keep that money in reserve because perhaps they think they're going to be in a special session this spring and they're going to have to come up with the money just to preserve the, the spending program they, they're talking about now. Um, the other part is pure pragmatic. They don't want to face, if they can avoid it, a tax or cut scenario in next year's election cycle. Well, they, they, I don't think he gets away with uh, cutting schools by 5.6%, I believe it is, while you leave $53 million in a fund specifically to set up to keep the schools from getting cut. He's, you either have to go over the top of the school districts or try to work with them on this. If you try to leave that money in a savings account, you got to go over the top of them. And, you know, I'm not over there anymore, but the, the people I talk to still over in Boise, it, they know they've got a tough sell to leave that money in a savings account that, again, is specifically set up to keep schools from getting cut. And you can extend the argument if you want to. The uh, And maybe Lee can uh, correct me here if I'm wrong because he was around at this time. The other rainy date accounts, when those things were set up, I think they had, to educate, had education in mind. And if they didn't, they had the entire budget in mind. Public schools are, uh, education total is about 60% of the budget. Public schools, I believe, in high 40s, so high 40s of that other reserve account, you could make the case that that's intended for the schools. So I, they, they've got a real difficult sell, I think, to uh, to cut the schools that deeply while you have money in, the, in a savings account. Yeah, but where's the consequence? I mean, who's going to vote them out of office for doing this? You yeah, just said that the, the Dems the have maxed out that's the question. And, and throughout the district. But six, and who's going to challenge Butch? Well, six years ago, though, we remember, and Lee was over there, too, when 5,000 teachers gathered on the steps of the Capitol, and uh, 
I don't know how direct the consequence there was um, that came out of that. I know I know Kempthorne got real scared there towards the end when uh, when our boss was running against him and spent him spent himself into debt. Yeah, and he I got a forty-two percent. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, we're, this is what you call newsroom talk. Yeah. This, is, this is what newspaper people do in the newsroom. But they're just missing some coffee up here. Yeah, come in, come in any time of the day. And uh... <laughs> we appreciate this banter. You don't don't stop on our account. <laughs> Sticking with education for a moment, the the governor has made a point and and pointed this out in his state of the state address that he intends to shift the policy-making authority away from the state board back to the Department of Education, which is where it was until the Kempthorne-dominated state board usurped authority from Marilyn Howard. What do you suppose is the reaction to that? I'll tell you my reaction. Why does it take a law? Mm-hmm. I mean, this, this is a constitutional board. I don't know how a law or a statute is going to change what they do. If the governor's unhappy with what's going on with that board, he needs to clean house. Mm-hmm. Many of the people still on it are responsible for, this, for these policies. And I don't know why he can't pick up the phone and say, you know, it's time for a change. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And was it particularly troublesome that, that since two out of every three tax dollars is essentially a devoted education that you had unappointed officials making those key decisions over education? Was there some fundamental problem with that as opposed to having an elected official make those decisions who was accountable to the public? Well, I, I think it, I'm going to sidestep that. I think it was a question of basic competence. You, know, you had people in the department who knew what they were doing and then you had uh, on the state board of people who were there, they were laymen and they had a political agenda. I don't think they would have been, you know, uh, you have to ask yourself, are we making this change now because the state superintendent is a Republican? Would, would they be having this law if Marilyn Howard had been reelected, or I mean if Janet had been elected uh, a couple years ago and, uh, you know, how much is this politics? Okay. It just tells me that if you stick around long enough, you'll see everything do this because I, I remember the, the blood feud fights in Boise when they took that stuff away from the Department of Education and shifted it to the board. To the board. And now we're, you know, we're kicking it back. And uh, I, I think Marty's on. I, if Marilyn Howard or Jana Jones uh, had won that race, there's, there's, you know, I think we're all smart enough to know that this wouldn't be happening. I mean, it's, uh, you know, Luna, Luna and, and Otter are fairly tight. And, uh, you know, that's fine. This, but this, this, this change wouldn't have happened if Jana Jones was superintendent. That, at least that's my guess. So you don't think the move is altogether altruistic, that in fact it reflects partisan politics? I don't know that I've ever seen any altruism. (laughs) We're we're talking about Boise, aren't we? And it usually doesn't work anyway. Here's another education question. Given the deep hits that higher education will absorb under this budget, is there is there among legislators a sense that this could cause great damage to the future of Idaho? Um, I, I think there is with some of them. Um, again, I'm not over there every day talking to these guys, but uh, I know when uh, some of the original, I, I did one of the budget cut stories or one of the holdback stories from last year, and I called Bart Davis, who's obviously the majority leader, and. And he's deeply troubled by it to the point where he was talking about maybe in good times we set up an education savings account for colleges because there's one great truth when we uh, we have hard budget times colleges get drilled because you can cut them 
and it's it's less complicated. It's incredibly complicated to cut the schools. It's incredibly complicated to cut health and welfare because of all the federal money tied in. How do you cut the prisons without going in and uh, releasing prisoners, which we just don't have the stomach to do, and frankly, we'll never institute things like good time and uh, some other measures as long as Denton Darrington chairs the Senate Judiciary Committee. It's just not going to happen because he can stick those bills in his pocket and he's perfectly willing to do it. So. Higher ed is, uh, there's four big, four big areas of budget, and that's health and welfare, mostly Medicaid, um, uh, K-12, college, health and welfare. College is the easiest to cut, and so it, every time there's a budget crunch, it gets drilled, and, uh, and we, we purposely shifted uh, funding away from the state to, to the students. Tuition has skyrocketed, which we know has two effects. It either keeps kids out or they leave with huge student loan burdens. And uh, that, you know, that's been a purpose. That's that's been a policy shift that was done on purpose. Couple that with pretty drastic budget cuts in higher ed, and uh, I I don't think anybody over there is blind to the fact that it, it's not doing any good. But who's making that case? Twenty years ago, you'd have people on the state board like Mike Mitchell or Bob Montgomery or Jerry Evans, and they would be out there in public saying. It is not our job to tell you where to get the money. It is our job to tell you what the impact is if you cut this budget. Nobody's saying that. We just had a report last fall that said that for the average Idahoan now, the cost of sending a kid to college is at the natural national average. We've lost our state's advantage in terms of low in-state tuition. We are educating fewer people in this generation higher education across the country than in my generation. How are we going to be globally competitive if we keep doing that? And nobody's making that case a couple of, except for a couple of numbskulls right here. Well, and you're losing, what, 32 graduate degree programs up at UI? Yeah. I mean, it's just, you know, it's, it's getting to the point, I think, where kids will start looking out of state because they can get better deals there. If they're going to pay this much, why would you pay this much to go to one of our schools when you're cutting graduate degree programs, your class sizes are getting huge? I mean, it doesn't make any sense. Well, and, and ask yourself, I mean, I'd love to see this done kid's 18 years old, he has no money, and he's looking at these student loans and he's asking himself, does it pay me more to go to work than to go to college and then pay off these student loans until I'm in my late 30s? Is this thing penciling out anymore? Which leads to another very important question, and since we're all among friends here, why do you suppose that Idaho legislators devalue education? <laughs> That's a leading question, sir. Uh, <laughs> thank, thank, you, thank you, Mr. Gagne. I appreciate the question. I don't know many legislators that devalue education. Um, there, there's a few over there that, uh, you know, the Stephen Thanes of the world who really do want to dismantle the public education system, but they're way off on the perimeters. In my mind, and from my experience over there, it comes from not being willing to make the tough decisions in other areas, on prisons, on health and welfare, and on your tax policy. Um, at some point, I guess you've got to decide what your priorities are. And we had this fight in 2003, as Lee well remembers, where we sat over there for 118 days because we had, we had a choice. We were either going to cut education fairly drastically or we were going to temporarily, temporarily raise the sales tax. Um, in that case, you had a governor and a Senate that wanted to raise the sales tax, you had a House that wanted to, uh, to cut the schools, 
um, eventually attrition had its way and, uh, and we temporarily raised the sales tax. Right now that's in reverse. You've got a governor who wants to cut the schools, a house that will go along with him, and a Senate that has drifted to the right. And uh, the, the, uh, the politics have changed over there. And so it, the likelihood of deep cuts to education, are, are, it's a lot more likely than it was six years ago. But I, I don't imagine that, at least in my experience, the people I dealt with over there were well-intended. They knew, I mean, they've got children, they've got grandchildren who attend these schools. But uh, a lack of willingness to make tough decisions on tax policy, and on spending in other areas has, has led us down a, a difficult path. And uh, for a lot of years, a lot of people have been saying we need to take a really thorough look, top to bottom, how we spend our money, how we collect our money, and it just hasn't been done. Marty, thoughts on this question? <laughs> well, they may have good intentions, but their actions speak. And I think what you see in the attitude of the state government today is an attitude that education is bloated, that we can cut it and keep cutting it and uh, it, there's waste and abuse going on there and besides that most of the people drawing the paychecks are members of the IEA and they vote Democratics and the hell with them. <laughs> let's shift gears here for a second. <laughs> let's, let's, go, let's go to the names of, a, uh, of some politicians here in, in the state and get your, your impressions of these. These folks. Uh, we talked earlier about uh, some potential candidates for statewide office. What's your impression of Dave Beter's possibility as a as a statewide candidate? He's a popular mayor in Bo in Boise, the state's largest city. Has he a future on a statewide basis? Um, I don't think they're good. Dave uh, Dave's an unquestionably bright guy, but he was also I covered him in the legislature and I really liked him, got along well with him, but he was perhaps the most liberal legislator I covered on issues like abortion, death penalty, all these things that in Boise proper go over just fine, but uh, when you get out here um, among us rustics, it, it doesn't sell. I mean, the kind of Democrat that sells in the state is, you know, we always bring him up, but a, you know, a logger from northern Idaho, uh, C. Sanders, it's, you need to find somebody like that who's fairly conservative, a fairly conservative Democrat. That that fits Clint Senate quite a bit. It, I, I think Dave would have a lot of trouble out here. I, I, again, I like I like Dave Beter a lot. He's a good guy. I think uh, from all indications, he's doing a good job over there. I have a hard time seeing him going out to St. Anthony and really getting people excited. Okay. Marty, well, I, I don't know Beter, but um, I think you have to look at what the context. He's, he, I assume he's up this year. Is, is this a mayoral election this year? Uh, see how he does. Uh, and then let's see what happens with the political environment. I, you know, I, I can remember when they said nobody could beat Bob Smiley in 1966, and then nobody came along and beat Bob Smiley in 1966. His name was Don Samuelson, and it happened. So anything's possible. Lifetime, uh, two years is a lifetime in politics. Uh, I wouldn't bet on it. I just as Republican as the state is, uh, Butch is popular still. Uh, you know. Uh, like you said, uh, any governor who would talk about cutting schools and raising gas taxes would presumably be in trouble, but I don't see it. Mm -hmm. Let's talk for a moment about Tom Luna. Does Tom Luna, uh, does he get bad press? Is he, is he treated unfairly? Uh, are people not aware of the proactive list of priorities that he's advanced for the Department of Education? 
I don't know, I guess. Um, I, I think we've treated Luna fairly, pretty fairly, and I like Tom. I've got to know him fairly well. Uh, I think we've reported accurately and fairly on what he's done. You know, I, write, I wrote something, I guess, a week ago Sunday about the school cuts, and, you know, when, when the governor proposed the school cuts, the state superintendent came out and said, essentially, yeah, I support the idea, and we reported it. So I, I don't see where Tom's gotten a real unfair shake. Um, again, there's probably not the depth of reporting on everything he's done because there's not the depth of reporting on anything anymore. It's, uh, and especially when you talk about minutia within the State Department of Education. So it depends on, how, I guess it depends on what you're comparing it with, but uh, I, I just have, I guess I haven't any, seen any examples where people are just taking shots at him. Mm -hmm. okay. I haven't seen much coverage of him at all. It's, it's, it's like anything else with state government. It's probably gonna get about three graphs deep inside and uh, you know, I, it's, it's, it's not the kind of uh, reporting that that I was doing 20 years ago or you were doing 10 years ago. It's very brief, and you know, it's got to be a big story for for Luna to get in the paper. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Let's let's turn to the Democratic Party and its fortunes for a moment. The Democratic Party has few seats in both the State House and, and in the Senate. Yesterday, a number of bills were introduced by Democratic lawmakers, including the idea of imposing a sunset on all sales tax exemptions for the reason that those are not reviewed. This would, in effect, require the legislature to revisit those sales tax exemptions. What's your response to that kind of a bill? Slim and none. <laughs> I used to watch Steve Aarons, who was the uh, president of the Idaho Association of Commerce and Industry, walk into a room and completely change votes just by sitting down. So um, those exemptions have been talked about forever and ever and ever, and uh, I, I've seen absolutely no movement, not even not not to repeal any of them, to even really study them. I mean, we had a interim committee, what was it, four years ago or so, that was set up to study them, and they wouldn't even do it. I mean, Dolores Crow was uh, one of the co-chairs. She wouldn't even do what the interim committee was set up to do. You know, these things are so entrenched, and there's so much money and power behind them that, uh, you know, it, it needs to be done. They need to be examined and to make make sure that they still pencil out and to you know, and to take a look at them. Just because periodically we should take a look at everything, but uh, it's that's really difficult for anybody to get any traction on those things, and especially a Democrat, frankly, because if you look at the makeup of the tax committee, it's always uh, you know four Democrats. 13 Republicans, and and especially on that committee, you know, generally a Democrat will bring a bill every year that repeals the sales tax on groceries, which is something Republicans talked about when they did the rich tax shift, but which is completely off the table now. So it's one of those things where you guess when you'll believe it when you see it. Uh, how many how many how many uh, campaign dollars are being spent to elect and lobby legislators who will repeal sales tax exemptions? <laughs> Versus how many or how many how many dollars are being spent to keep them in place? What about this democratic measure that would would prohibit the co campaign contributions while the legislature is in session? I think that was introduced by Assistant Minority Leader Kate Kelly of Boise. What do you think of that? Well, uh, good luck. I, it sounds like the the most recent headline involves a campaign contribution that was made to a non-incumbent prior to the session, mm -hmm. where. Uh, what is it, Clunan? Uh, the, the story Dan had last week. Uh, a member of the DEQ board was running for an open seat in Boise, and the realtors promised her 
a $500 check and then she went in and voted against the realtor's position on a septic tank regulation on the DEQ board and suddenly the check disappeared. Uh, but that, that that reform wouldn't get to that kind of and oh and the uh, she filed a complaint and the attorney general's office came back and said the law was broken. That one's been kicked around a little bit and I would think that one might ha actually have a chance because I because frankly I don't think Republican leadership sees much harm in it. They figure they can probably do what they need to do before and after. So yeah, you know, Kate might have a shot on that one. Um, when you start talking about things like forcing these guys to disclose where they make money outside of the state house and um, you know some different things that really have some teeth in it and it's you know it goes to Senate State Affairs and it gets shut down but uh, yeah, who knows you know she might she might get a little play with that one do you do you see anything in in the changes in demographic patterns here in the state that would suggest that the fortunes of the Democratic Party will be stronger in the years ahead and secondly uh, what would you suggest that the Democratic Party could do here in eastern Idaho to strengthen its position. Um, one thing the Democratic Party has had, I think, kind of historically, is a, is a case of Boiseitis. And I'll just tell you a brief story. I can't remember what year it was, but the Democrats' uh, biennial convention was in Pocatello, and you had this—they were doing the platform—and you had these kids from Boise who were um, proposing a, a virulently anti. A, or a, pro-abortion plank and a pro-gay marriage plank and uh, I was standing in the back with Clint Stennett and with uh, with another Democrat who was elected and they're you know and this other Democrat was saying to me you know if we had these things I had to run as a Republican I'd have had to because he came from uh, one of these more conservative communities and Clint finally got on the microphone and said listen this all is well and good for you guys but I got to get out here and elect people and so what the party needs to do is realize there's more than the downtown Boise coffee shops. I mean, and that's where it's centered, that's where the ideas come from. And those ideas in downtown Boise don't sell out here. And uh, you've seen it repeatedly. And uh, until, until they understand that there are places like Idaho Falls and uh, Rigby and uh, Rathdrum and, you know, name it. And there's... I, there's not a lot of hope, frankly. They're going to have their pockets, but I don't see how they expand out as long as people identify with either the Boise downtown crowd or even worse, the uh, National Democratic Party back east, because if people see your face as Nancy Pelosi out here, you're not going to have a lot of luck, I don't think. Marty? Yeah. Well, I think, one, they got to keep doing what they're doing, which is uh, building from the bottom up winning at the courthouse level, keep trying to punch away at the legislative level, and then hope for the good fortune that the Republicans will close their primary. <laughs> no, I do. I think if the Republicans make that mistake, you're going to drive a lot of people away from the Republican Party. Perhaps the middle will move to the Democrats. A number of good questions deal with the issue of news coverage here, and, and you both addressed this briefly in the outset of your remarks. In this current issue of Atlantic Monthly, one of the lead stories has a provocative title, Can the New York Times Be Saved? And that's a reflection, of course, of the fact that, that costs are rising, revenues down, more and more newspapers are putting their product online. So our audience is wondering, what's the future of newspapering in the country, here with the Idaho Falls paper as well, and, and uh, what alarms you, if anything, about those trends? <laughs> That's the wrong question for us. We're, we're both dinosaurs here, so we barely turn our computers on, much less. 
Um, that's a great question, and uh, I come back to the point. I, the one thing that's going to save us, I think, I hope, um, is the fact that you know you can blog, you can transfer this information, but you still need me to go get it. You still need him to go get it because you know we know we know how to do it. Frankly, I can go get 20 years of judges' sentencing on child uh, child molestation cases, or you know go dig out education budgets from the last 25 years. The bloggers can't do that. What they're really good at is taking that information though and transferring it, and uh, how how it's going to be presented. I, you know, I've never really worried about it. I just worried about going and getting it, and you know, trying to uh, trying to hold the light of day up to these guys. But it's, it, this has kind of forced us to think of uh, how we how we uh, about our business model and how we actually get that information to you folks. And uh, frankly, that's way above my pay grade. But uh, we we got to find a, we got to figure out a way to these people who take our information and they essentially pass it along the chain, we, we got to figure out a way to charge them for it, I think. And if we don't, you know, God knows. I mean, you're, you're looking at newspapers in Seattle and Denver and across the country that are, you know, filing bankruptcy or getting clo close to closing their doors. And no matter what you think of the press, it's not a healthy thing to have newspapers sh shutting down because even even if you hate 80% of what's in it, there's 20% that's, that's got some value and you've got people going out and doing things that are necessary that you know, if we don't do it, it's not going to get done. So uh, we got to figure it out. And uh, like I said, there's smarter people than me working on this. So why can't we get a government bailout? <laughs> <laughs> We're in the Constitution, well, we get a government bailout. Too? But then you get the strings too. Uh, so I, I don't have an answer. I, I I am concerned. My one of my big concerns is I don't think readership is uh, being carried through the next generation. I don't think as each generation comes up, I think few and fewer of them pay close attention uh, as much as the earlier generation did. And, uh, you know, when you walk up to somebody who's in their 20s and, it's, and mention, you know, Joseph McCarthy or Doug, uh, Douglas MacArthur, and they don't know who that is, it's a little disconcerting. One of the, we, we mentioned at the outset that one of the great purposes of a free and independent press, of course, is to check government, to report on governmental activities and programs so as to inform the people. Increasingly, uh, particularly American uh, students, are turning to blogs and other websites which, of course, don't reflect uh, professional journalism. And, and one of the key concerns here in the country is, is that as professional journalism declines, we lose the process of establishing standards. Journalists go to journalism school. They are the work under editors who went to journalism school, the emphasis on standards and accuracy are very important. I disclose here, by the way, my bias. In a former life, I was a newspaper reporter. And, and so if, in fact, Americans turn increasingly to, to blogs for their information, what implications are there in that trend for government in a democracy in which people need accurate information to judge the actions of their government? I think it's more polarization for one thing. You're telling people what they want to hear. And I don't think it's just the blogs. You can get on cable TV. If, if you're you know, Republican, you watch Fox. If you're Democrat, you turn on Keith Olbermann. You know, but nobody's challenging your point of view. And the mass media has that broader approach and that professional approach that is at least anchored to some sense of uh, fact-based reality, less opinion. Um, that's my big concern is, is that our discussions, we're shouting at each other. 
we're not talking anymore, and, we're, and we're, we're telling people what we believe, not what we know. Yeah, I think we're just winging it a little bit. I mean, uh, when you read a blog, you have, you have no real idea of what you're getting is true. Um, and there's no real good way to check it. And if it's not true, there's no consequence. I mean, if I write a story and I quote John Hansen and I just mangle the quote, you, know, you can be sure he's going to call me the next day and, uh, and I'm going to write a correction. I may bury the correction on A4 or something. <laughs> but I'll write it. And, uh, and beyond that, I've got to go back and deal with John Hansen, you know, again. And if, I, if I'm burning my sources out there, they're not going to deal with me and I'm not going to be able to get information. So... And mostly, with newspapers, it's, it's there. You can hold it, you can see it, you can reread it. You know, with talk radio, with television, it's there and it's gone. It just goes into the air and it disappears. And there's no real way to... Uh, you can check it, but it's, it's really difficult. With us, I, I think there's, uh, there's, there's, definitely, uh, there's definitely a commitment to what's, to what's true, because if it's wrong, somebody's going to call us on it. And... Uh, and it's going to start showing up in our everyday work. So, and, and that's the correcting nature of it. I, I think as you get into this business, every time you screw up, it's painful. You remember the lessons. Those are hard lessons. You make a big mistake, and you've got to go and apologize, especially if it's on the front page. You're never going to. I still remember incident 25 years ago. You know, it, it, that's that's the nature. If you're writing an anonymous blog. I remember. You make a mistake, what's the penalty? We all have these stories. I can distinctly remember that Senator Crapo had prostate cancer. It's all the way through my story. I dropped the O. <laughs> Speaking of accuracy in the news, what, what is your view as, as to what the Post Register might look like in five years? Is it going to come to our homes every morning? appear on our doorstep or are we going to be entirely online I think you'll still I think you'll still get it you'll get fewer pages I think you'll get a thinner newspaper um, we just you know with, and who knows what the economy is going to do maybe in two years we'll all be out of this and we'll be back to normal but uh, there's no doubt our readership has, has got some got some silver in their hair and uh, We've, we've got to find a way, just, just as a business model, to get this to younger people and get them involved in it. So hopefully your newspaper in five years will have something that they want because we, we can do both. I mean, we can do the kind of stuff that he and I do and enjoy doing while also giving you know, a teenage kid something to read. And, uh, and we have to. We've got to figure that out or else, you know, I mean, we're doomed. You can't, uh, 20 years from now, our readers aren't going to be around. So we've we, we got to figure this thing out. I plan on being here 20 years from now. Not, not all of you, I'm sorry. <laughs> well, they're buying a new press, so I guess we're going to keep publishing. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Let me follow that up, Corey. You mentioned that, that newspapers have to change, in effect, to accommodate the interests of, of new readers. Is, there, is it still possible that the press can play a leadership role in the country, or does the press have to, for lack of a better term, dumb down? the quality of its news and the detail of its news so as to entice new readers? I still think you can do both. I, I, you know, my 50-inch uh, story on education cuts, you know, I, maybe 10, 15% read that thing, but, you know, that's still 10, 15% that read it. That's fine. We can send, you know, hopefully we offer something 
for people who want something else. You know, we have a sports page for that reason. I mean, I love the sports page. I used to write sports. Um, we've got feature sections for those reasons. What we need to do is find something that appeals to the young, younger demographic. Um, and I, I know these kids grow up with computers and blogs and, you know, reading the newspaper on the telephone or wh whatever it is. But I, I wonder is that as, you get, if, as you get older, if that fades. Maybe it doesn't. I don't know. Maybe this is just the way it's going to be and we're going to have to react to it. But uh, again, I, I don't think we have to lose the reason we exist, frankly, is to, is to do these, is to watchdog the government. Like Marty said, we're, we're in the First Amendment. And, uh, you know, that thing, is, that, thing is, that thing is there so that somebody can watchdog government and somebody can do these stories. But, you know, we, we don't have to be one thing. I think we can be across the spectrum. Marty? Well, I, I, I think you'll find that if we do that job well, we can have readers. I think you'll find our readership went up when we did the Scout series. Yeah, and the Kimball Mason yeah, stuff. That's, uh, you know. So I, I don't know that those two are at odds. But it is a danger. I mean, uh, as Corey said, you, they said it jokingly, but when Bob Fick retired, a number of senators said, well, we're going to be under less scrutiny around here. And that's true. Uh, Bob kept him honest, and there is nobody of his caliber working in Boise today. I think you'd have to concede that the coverage of politics in Idaho has been diminished. Well, beyond that, there's no, the institutional memory is going. All the guys, again, this isn't that long ago. I went over there in 2000, and there, there was, it was Fick and Wayne Hoffman and Greg Hahn and really good reporters from around the state. None of those guys are reporters anymore. You know, Fick worked for Commerce, Mark Warwick worked for Otter, Wayne Hoffman worked for Sally. All these guys who mentored me, and I, Fick took me under his wing, and it wasn't always pretty, because he would chew my butt some days, but, uh, you know, I needed it. And these guys taught. And the kids going over now, they don't have anybody to teach them this stuff. I mean, the day Fick, the day Fick, he didn't just retire, he got forced out of there. AP didn't want that kind of reporting anymore. And, you know, Bob Fick would make these guys honest by walking into the room. I mean, they all looked up, because nobody knew this stuff like Fick. You know, maybe Rish. Maybe Stan Hawkins, frankly. He's the only guys I saw go toe-to-toe -to -toe with Fick. But, uh, yeah, like Marty says, that's gone. And uh, you've got a bunch of 24, 25-year-olds over there who are doing the best they can, but they're, they're not getting the, uh, the guidance that we got, for sure. By the way, what is the, what is the current policy of the Post Register with respect to the endorsement of candidates? Uh, we don't endorse. Don't endorse. I, uh, when I came here, I had worked at the uh, Lewiston Tribune and, and um, Bill... Paul and Jim Fisher had the attitude that if you don't know where we stand by now, you haven't been reading us. And I, I thought that was a pretty good policy. I, uh, I also <coughs> felt like if you endorse somebody and they and you were wrong, you were stuck with them. Uh, you know, it's one thing to endorse an issue, an initiative, or come out against it, but you know, people hold different positions, and you inevitably don't agree with everything they say. Plus. If the paper were to make endorsements here, you, how political do you get? I've seen other papers make endorsements where it was obvious when they endorsed a candidate from column A, an endorsement for candidate from column B was coming the next day. And finally, you know, just as luck would have it, the president of the company is running for governor. Thank God we had that policy. <laughs> Someone asked him who he would have endorsed. What, that year? Yeah. Self-preservation. Self-preservation. <laughs> <laughs> it's 
speaking of the practice of endorsement, is it true that newspaper endorsements can mold public opinion? I ask you that in, in light of the fact that there is a widespread view, particularly out here in the West, that so-called liberal newspapers such as the New York Times and the Washington Post, who always endorse uh, Democratic candidates, unfairly uh, serve their readership. And that's particularly interesting because over the past 25 years, the candidates endorsed by the Times and the Post have lost their races. So what does it say about the practice of endorsing? Is there a point? Well, to give the other side, I suppose the point is it, it, it makes you know the paper uh, is one of, uh, interested observer who looks at all the facts and perhaps crystallizes it down. But I have a hard time believing that anybody reads a newspaper editorial and makes up their mind based on that. It, that that's beyond me. I, I just find that hard to believe. And for one thing, anybody who's reading editorial, I suspect, already has his mind made up. I remember when Walt Minnick came through when he was running for the Senate in 96, and uh, he noted he wasn't buying any newspaper advertising. He said, because the people who read a newspaper have already made up their minds. It's, uh, you know, you buy ads on TV for the people who are going to be motivated by the impulse. So if that's the case, why would an editorial influence anybody in terms of who they vote for? The, the nature of journalism has changed considerably over the years, but, but one current practice which has caught a lot of attention is the, is the level of participation of journalists in their stories. For example, we've seen journalists embedded with troops in Iraq. That's participatory journalism in a sense. Uh, what's your reaction to journalists participating in, in news making? Um, well, it's, it certainly violates your most basic instinct because the, the first thing you're taught is, you know, stay, you're not part of the story, you're, you're a dispassionate observer. Um, the embedding thing, you know, was just out of necessity for those guys. I mean, I had no other way to do it, frankly. Um, you know, Hunter Thompson did it awful well, but uh, there's not many of us who could, uh, who could do that, so... I think there's probably a small niche for people who are good at it and maybe writing first person and writing, you know, columns and uh, news col writing news columns, but for for those of us who are strictly reporting the news, uh, you know, it, it makes me really uncomfortable. That's why we both look like we're getting our teeth pulled up here because we're not used to, you know, we're used to being the guy sitting over in the corner over there with our notepads and uh, not the one standing or sitting in front of y'all. So. It's uh, it's nothing that I've ever wanted to do, but uh, and I don't know. I I think there's probably a place for it, but uh, even when you read a column like that, you still you still have a little tick in the back of your mind. You're you're wondering, okay, this guy's obviously in the story. He's got his own emotions and thoughts and feelings. I think when you read a dispassionate report, you know you, you don't have that. So again, there's there's a newspaper should be a, a great uh, a great potpourri of things, and I think there's room for both. I don't. I don't think many readers would accept that, especially in this environment. You know, in this community, you think people are going to accept uh, a reporter that uh, clearly spells out whose side he's on and his impression. I think people here are very um, careful about what they get from their newspaper, and they hold us to a pretty high standard. I just don't think they'd buy it. 
Now, in a, in a similar vein, newspapers, of course, are quite capable of generating news and moving a community to act. You can conduct investigative stories, such as the long series on the Scouts, for example. Is, is, this, is this an approach to journalism that, that you find acceptable, that newspapers can be a force in the community? And let me, let me preface this with a background story of a, of a famous reporter, some of you may know, that before Mark Twain was Mark Twain, he was Samuel Clemens, working for a newspaper in San Francisco. And on a particularly slow news day, he was very bored. He grabbed a colleague. They went out to the hills, out to the countryside. They found an abandoned barn. They set it afire. They found a comfortable seat on the hill and watched the fire department come put out that fire. They created news. <coughs> uh, what are you saying about the Scout series? <laughs> Um, I, uh, putting aside the fire story, I, I think it's not only acceptable, but I think it's what we need to do. Um, I'll give an example. This is maybe a year ago when uh, the guy up in Rigby, Michael Neff, had molested his kids for a long time, and he got ended up getting sent on a 180-day rider, and people were outraged. Well, a couple of us, Nick Draper and I, went and did 20 years of research on judges' sentencing. That's not strictly a news story, but it's, I, I think, again, I think it's why we exist, and I think we're uniquely positioned to do those things. So I, I, I think we should, we, we should, and frankly, we have to be more than just a reactive body that goes and runs out when somebody gets run over on 17th. You know, that's why the TV stations exist. I'm sorry. It's... Uh, <laughs> I, I, I think it's our job to observe things that are happening and then try to dig further and try to find out what's going on behind, you know, try to, try to, try to unpeel the layers rather than just reacting and doing the obvious stories. I, I don't think you're going to lead the community unless the community is receptive. Uh, the Scout series and the Neff story is a perfect example. Those stories led to changes in the law. Now the paper didn't do that unilaterally, but it was part of the mix. And I don't think uh, anything, you know, if, if we had written that story and nobody cared, then we wouldn't, you know, nothing would have happened. I think you found a receptive audience that cared very much about what was going on there, and you struck a nerve. I'm, there are probably countless stories that were published that did not do that. You know, you, you think you've got a winner, and, and it just doesn't light a fire. Shifting gears here, the... The practice or the process of redistricting will soon be upon us with the 2010 census. Is there any sentiment in the legislature that we should abandon the idea or the practice of having citizen commissions and return the power to the legislature of engaging the process of redistricting? Um, there, the, this was very quiet, and I don't think it got widely reported, but the Republicans wrote into their platform last year that we should do that very thing. and. Uh, I, I'm confident there will be a bill. Uh, someone's going to bring a bill this year. Maybe uh, Bob Geddes brought one. He's a Senate president, uh, pro temp. He brought one two or th three years ago, if my memory serves, and it was defeated really by the urban Republicans who didn't want to lose their urban districts, which I think is what they fear, because when we had this in the legislature, if you remember, we had those districts that all branched out into the, into the county, and so you didn't have a true city district. Um, I, I'm positive they're going to take a run at it, and uh, you know, I, again, I'm not as tuned in to the politics over there, but uh, they've they've certainly got the numbers. Um, the, the, I'm, and the Democrats, I'm sure, will fight this to their death because they've got a pretty good thing going. They've got equal representation on that thing. Um, 
And the last go around, uh, we, I, I was at every one of those meetings uh, for some reason, but uh, they, they had they had a, they had better representation on the committee. They, they, they just they had they appointed better people, frankly, and so they really came out pretty good. They got city districts here, I think Lewiston. Um, they got a pretty favorable uh, cut up of Boise. So that, that's that's a that's going to be a really big fight. It's it's one that doesn't get a lot of attention because it's so wonkish, but it's it's very important, and I'm I'm sure something's coming. I, I've got to ask a procedural question. Is this a constitutional amendment? Yes. So you're going to need two thirds in the House and the Senate, and then pass it on the ballot. It's going to be tough. One more. We're about out of time. A quick question. We have many school districts in the state. Maybe too many. Some people argue. Should those be consolidated? Should those be consolidated? Should we require school districts to bear their own expenses? What are your views on that, Marty? Well, I, I think you ought to consolidate some of them. I mean, explain to me why we live in a community where we have two school districts where we've had moderate growth, but one of them is building schools and the other one is closing them. That makes no sense to me. Now, the argument will come back that if you consolidate, you're going to have to pay the teachers in the poorer district as much as you pay the teachers in the richer one. And you may not save any money, but you will spend what you save on administration on the classroom. And I think that's worth trying. Okay. It's it's a tough one though because we passed a bill a few years ago that incentivized this and you know, there's some financial reward to this, but no one no one wants to do it. You know, I I can remember asking Kempthorne about this and he said, You go out to Firth and Shelley and tell those people they only get one basketball team. You know, it's just it's something that people on the ground don't want. You know, they, they love their little community schools. We started with more than what a thousand school districts at the end of World War II. And we're now down about 115. Mm -hmm. So it can be done. Yeah, yeah, good. As we bring this program to a conclusion, ladies and gentlemen, let me ask you by uh, an important question. Let me introduce a novel concept. Let's call it Cheers or Jeers. Oh God. <laughs> and applaud our participants today. Thank you very much. That concludes this edition of the City Club of Idaho Falls, which airs the final Monday of each month right here on KISU, heard at 91.1 Pocatello, 91.3 Idaho Falls, or anytime online at KISU.org. More information about the City Club of Idaho Falls can be found at ifcityclub.org. This is Public Radio on KISU. Support for this program comes from the ISU Federal Credit Union, serving southeast Idaho's educational community since 1952.